1: Now I want to bring in Phil Orlando. You probably know him, the chief equity market strategist and head of client portfolio management at Federated Hermes. Um, Phil, you have a couple decades at least of experience in these markets. And I, I wonder what you think about where we are right now because it feels frothy. It feels um, toppy, but so many people are still incredibly bullish, this equity market.
2: Well, um, first of all, thank you very much for having me on. It, it's four decades of experience. So I've got pl- <laughs> plenty of gray hair and I've seen, uh, obviously more than a couple of cycles. Um, interesting question, because we were down about 4% or so from the middle of February into, I, I guess it was last Friday. And the concern was that the federal reserves uh, accommodative policies were leading to inflationary pressures uh... it really hasn't manifested itself in the core cpi and PCE, but it's absolutely manifested itself in a lot of the nominal metrics we look at agricultural commodities like corn wheat and soybeans uh... crude oil copper lumber these prices have gone vertical over the last you know eight or nine months, as we've come out of you know the deepest recession in history and and it's it's our feeling, and, and I think a lot of folks believe that over time this will filter into the core numbers, and they are in fact starting to move up. so I think investors took you know four percent of chips off the table over the last fortnight or so, and then the question was what's going to happen next? well, the numbers, the data is coming in pretty good and you know, we just saw the ism number for february uh... strongest number in three years uh... last week the uh... personal income and spending numbers were very strong uh... the durable goods and cap goods numbers were very strong so the 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 recession in our mind ended last may or june that that we're in this powerful recovery that if anything is going to be enhanced with the sugar high associated with the next iteration of fiscal stimulus that, that President Biden is looking to right. put on top of this. So as I look out over the balance of this year, we think that we're, we're you know, GDP is probably going to be, you know, 5 or 6% or, yep. or perhaps higher. SP and p 500, 4,500, things look pretty good.
1: I mean, Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg Intelligence um, says, I think, 7.4 percent in Q4. That's what annual GDP is going to look like, um, the highest since 1983. And the concern, of course, Phil, is that this brings with it the inflation that we're starting to see you point out in commodities. And that brings uh, an about face by central banks, by the Fed to raise rates. And our most read story of the day um uh, quotes a guy called Sam Sicilia who uh, runs a a pension fund in Melbourne, Australia. He says that's wrong. He says deflationary forces are bigger, in his opinion. And he says in five to 10 years time, people are going to look back and say we should have bought stocks at 20 times earnings. What do you think? Well,
2: well, I agree that we should have bought stocks at 20 times earnings. Last March was an awesome buy point. You've got treasury yields, which are still very low. I'm a big Fed model guy. So the reality is that you should be willing to pay 20 to 25 times earnings, given how low interest rates are. But but you, you're, uh, the, the gentleman that you're just quoting made a very interesting point that, that, I, that I would like to circle back to. Even though you've got these nascent nominal inflation concerns bubbling you know out there on the horizon the federal reserve is is not going to address that at any point over the course of this calendar year and and the reason for that in our view is is just a matter of practicality jay powell's term as the federal reserve chairman expires january of of next year and th- he would very much in my opinion like to get reappointed there is zero chance but he's going to scale back QE or begin to come off a zero-bound funds rate, which potentially would, would uh, harm his chances of being reappointed by, by President Biden. So, so this issue, are we going to scale back QE, are we going to start to raise interest rates, might be a 22 or a 23 issue, but it's certainly not a 21 issue.
0: All right, Phil, you have been bullish for a long time. You have been right for a long time. What's your biggest concern in the marketplace here for your bullish call?
2: Well, I, you know, one of, the, one of the key reasons for our bullishness is the fact that we thought we would get a series of vaccines that would be efficacious and that the rollout, uh, you know, at roughly a million a day, would get us to uh, critical mass and herd immunity by the middle of this year. We thought that by the time we got to the 4th of July – independence day we'd be on the other side of this thing and could start to begin to normalize the economy but suppose that's wrong all right suppose we stumble on the rollout suppose these variances that we're seeing out of south africa or the uk render less efficacy with the with the vaccines that are out there and and then that throws our thesis into uh... Uh, into disarray. So we'd like mm-hmm. to believe that we're on the right path here, but, but certainly the the healthcare-related issues are, are the things that probably keep me awake at night more than anything.
0: Hey, Phil, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it, as always. Again, you've been consistently bullish, uh, and you've been consistently right, and the, the folks that invested at Federated Hermes uh, are reaping the benefits. They're Phil, Phil Orlando, Chief Equity Market Strategist and Head of Client Portfolio Management at Federated Hermes based in Pittsburgh, PA. When you go to Pittsburgh, the first stop is the sell side analysis. You got to stop in and see the folks at Federated. They're big across asset classes. They see market trends on a global scale and we uh, appreciate having them come on. I want to
1: continue uh, our focus right now on on what's going on um, from a Bloomberg opinion, perspective in terms of President Biden's um, uh, sort of melding of the polarized America. You know, from here in Germany, um, it seems pretty bad, and it didn't seem like we'd had uh, real improvement um, after, the, after the inauguration. Let's bring in Jonathan Bernstein, who's a politics columnist, to talk about what's going on in terms of the healing of America Jonathan, how how do you see, um, you know, the state of, of U.S. health right now?
3: Well, it, you know, it, we, we have health. a situation where the out party, the Republican Party, is not accepting a lot of people in the Republican Party, not accepting the results of the election. And that the former president, uh, Donald Trump, is still, you know, claiming without any evidence that the election was stolen. So that's a You know, that's something that we have not had for a long time, and it's dangerous. You know, the the idea of a democracy requires— haven't we moved
1: past that at this point? I mean, I know that was the case, and there was this horrible uh, act of violence, um, insurrection at Congress, but I really haven't heard many people mention it in the last couple of weeks. Aren't we—have we moved on from that point?
3: Well, you w- weren't listening then to the big uh, uh, conservative meeting over the weekend, the CPAC Definitely meeting. not.
0: No.
1: <laughs> where
3: where Donald Trump gave a speech and where most of the speeches, you know, kept talking about this mythical election fraud and all that kind of thing. So, you know, and and you need the party for a democracy to work. You need both parties to accept that elections happen and the winner takes office and the loser loses. And, you know, in the long term, as we're looking at, you know, the health of American democracy, it's a real big deal that republicans, a big chunk of Republicans are not accepting election results. Now, you know, day to day, does that matter on Capitol Hill? Well, you know, Joe Biden is president. Um but in terms of the sort of health of American democracy, that's a huge problem going forward. Jonathan, are there any
0: undecided voters in America anymore?
3: Uh yes, but there sure are a lot fewer. You know, um if you look at for example, Joe Biden's approval ratings and disapproval ratings, um, so far his approval ratings are basically normal for recent presidents. He's around 54% approval. Um, that's much better than Trump was originally. Uh, it's a little behind where Barack Obama was. He was unusually popular. But of the other presidents from, say, Nixon on, it's, it's basically they were all in the mid-50s, uh, give or take at this point. But his disapproval rating... Um, is 38%, which is, other than Trump, would have been the record high. And, you know, if you look back in the mid-century, mid-20th century presidents, the beginning of the polling era, most of them started off with disapproval ratings under 10%. In fact, all of them under 10%, Eisenhower, Kennedy, um, you know, in that era, Lyndon Johnson, they they were under 10 percent disapproval when new presidents came in. Most people, who didn't you know who weren't their supporters, said let's give them a chance. We we don't have an opinion yet about how they're doing. Nowadays that's not true. Um, all the recent presidents have, have started with higher disapproval ratings, but Biden's at you know 38 percent now is uh, much higher than uh, where Reagan or Carter or. Oh. The Bushes were early on. I, I'm tempted
1: to think, you know, we just had this obviously incredible period of partisanship. Um, the pre- former president, Donald Trump, as well as his 2016 uh, opponent, um, Hillary Clinton, unbelievable polarizing figures, both very, well, I guess, kind of partisan, um, although I don't really think of Trump. I wouldn't have thought of him at the time as a traditional Republican, but. Uh, it's tempting to think of it that 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 happened because of those two or because of Trump but um you see it happening everywhere jonathan um you see this polarization in the uk uh, around brexit you see it in eastern europe around these authoritarian leaders i mean is this a, a global problem because of i'm tempted to say facebook rather than a problem of america because of trump
3: well i, I would say it- in the United States, it goes back a lot earlier than Trump. So, you know, if you look at um, during the Clinton administration and on, you have this sort of strong, um, especially on the Republican side, this refusal to accept that, oh, yeah, we lost an election. And so Republicans, you know, what is their what is their legislative program? It's to make it more difficult for Democrats to vote and for them to set up elections to help um, their own party. Um, I, it's harder to say globally whether it's all the same phenomenon. I'm just saying I, you
1: see it happening yeah. everywhere, so it can't be yeah. just an American thing, right? Or do you blame the Republican Party for it, you
3: the know, world's It's hard problems? to tell whether that's whether there's something, you know, of the modern era, whether it's communications or something else that makes it more likely. Um, you know, traditionally, the United States had a very weak parties and didn't have strong partisanship. That changed in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and so it, it's it's a more recent phenomenon in the United States, whereas in some pl- place like Britain, you always had sort of strong... You didn't have that kind of uh, weak parties, um, weak non-ideological parties that the United States used to have.
0: All right, so you know, coming out of the CPAC... Uh, Gathering over the weekend, President Trump came away as the leading contender via a poll for 2024. Is this still Trump's party going forward?
3: You know, it's hard to tell exactly what will happen. Um, You can't really predict much off of CPAC straw polls. They've been wrong many, many times before. Um, in, In a sense, Republicans still really like Trump, but whether they prefer Trump to other candidates is a little unclear. A lot of the CPAC um, participants said, well, we don't act, about a third of them said, well, we don't really want him to run again. Um, What what I would say is that the attitudes of the party, the anti-democratic, maybe authoritarian strain of the Republican Party, which preceded Trump, got stronger as a result of Trump and is very strong today. So even if it's not Trump, it's harder to see somebody like, uh, you know, John McCain or Mitt Romney becoming the nominee, next time, although we're still three years away. So, you know, a long time that things could change.
0: Hey, Jonathan, thanks so much for joining us. We appreciate it. As always, Jonathan Bernstein, Bloomberg News opinion columnist, uh, just giving us the latest lay of the land of the political establishment. But uh, again, it'll be interesting to see the um, the data that Jonathan cited in his column shows that, the uh, you know, the polling data, we look at the the favorables and the unfavorables really You know, crystallizing what we all kind of know, which is the polarization, the political polarization in this country uh, appears as strong uh, as it's ever been. And uh, as Jonathan suggested, we'll have to see how it plays out over the next, um, you know, four years until we get to the uh, next presidential election cycle. But fascinating to hear Jonathan's uh, opinions.
1: I want to get to the blowout ISM numbers that we saw across the Bloomberg today. You can, well, if you're in the US, just type EcoGo. I'll give you a hint. Anywhere else in the world, if you type W E C O WecoGo, you can pick from an assortment of really fun flags. And uh, That's a if new you click one. on. I didn't know that one. Yeah, yeah, a week ago. Okay. Uh, click on the, the American flag, obviously, the stars <laughs> and stripes there. And you can see um, ISM uh, coming out, new orders 64.8, uh, um, prices paid 86. Manufacturing, which is the, the number we look the most closely at, 60.8. The survey was for 58.9. So a blowout number. Let's bring in Timothy Fiores, the chairman of the manufacturing business survey. Um, at ISM. Thanks so much for joining us. Why were these numbers so strong? What happened?
4: Yeah, thanks, Paul and Matt. So uh, this is our ninth straight month of manufacturing expansion, which is leading the U.S. economy out of the post-pandemic decline. So we had five of six industry sectors, which are our biggest industry sectors, recording indexes on their own over 60. So that's the primary point here is that uh, we had strong industry sectors really leading us out this month. We have really good order levels, as you mentioned. All the supporting sub-indexes that support the new order number were very strong. A uh, backlog being notable at 64, highest number in about 15 years. We had really good production output with the employment growing also, which is a good sign. We've had some difficulty on the employment side for a couple of months. And we continue to have headwinds on the input side with supplier deliveries and the inventory. So And that probably won't get resolved until the vaccine is, is widespread deployed. So really good month exceeded my expectations. As you mentioned, the economists were thinking 58.9, 60.8 was a really strong number.
0: All right. So, yeah, Tim, just great numbers. And as you know, you've explained to us in months past, it's really been the manufacturing sector that's leading this economy out of uh, you know, those, that shock we experienced early part of last year. Is there a risk here that the price for input prices could be problematic for some of these manufacturers, maybe even inflationary?
4: Well, at some point, I mean, it could slow things, but there's no signs of it at this point. Uh, on the general comment side, I'm receiving no comments that they're not able to push prices through their customers. And normally, I would start to get that if they get headwinds. Now, I think we're probably a couple of months away from that. You know, uh, standard costs were set going into January. Variances are now being seen at the uh, company cost level. There'll be pressure on the sales guys to try to push those price increases through. We'll see what happens. But uh, at this point, uh, you know, it looks really strong. I don't see anything that's going to, stop us continuing to expand at some pretty high levels.
1: What do you think about the um, commodity inflation that we've seen? I mean, you're in a unique position to answer this question because you've had management roles at UTEX and um, you were the chief procurement officer for Tosin Krupp. So what does this mean to you, the jump in metals price? Not just metals, but raw materials, soft, ags. I mean, everything.
4: Yeah, the biggest foundations here are basic chemicals steel, aluminum, and plastic pellets. I mean, that, that tends to get into almost any manufactured product. And as a uh, as a buyer, boy, I'm struggling like crazy right now because I'm seeing price increases. But generally what happens when you have input price growth, you also have margin expansion and uh, revenue expansion at the company level. So it may not be good for supply people, but it's generally good for the economy. I mean, I, I like to see prices go up when I'm sitting here uh, you know, looking at the analysis for the manufacturing side. But I don't see it slowing anything yet anyway. And I think When we did our economic forecast for 21, we predicted that we'd see about a 3% growth in input costs, and we're probably on track for that.
0: Tim, you know, one topic that we don't talk that much about anymore, which was topic A for much of last year, is just kind of trade tensions, supply chain disruptions, tariffs. Are the folks you talk to in the manufacturing in the heartland, what are they saying about China and just broader supply chain issues?
4: Well, right now it's about getting product. Uh, The ports are still jammed up. Uh, They've been jammed up up until Lunar New Year. We thought they might relax in the next uh, few weeks, but most likely that's going to continue to be a problem right into the summertime. Transportation issues are really an extreme issue, primarily because we have so many parts shortages that people are having to ship half-empty trucks. I think 28%, 34% of our supplier delivery comments were transportation-related. So and that's been growing month to month, 32% in the prior month, 28 the prior month from that. So there's a lot of disconnections here in the supply chain. Manufacturing people know how to manage that. They, they have their hands full right now, probably more so than any uh, recent economic growth that, that I can recall. But uh, we're, we're making good gains. I think the biggest issue here is really labor at the supplier facilities and uh, our panelist companies. And we saw some movement here in, in the uh, February time frame.
0: Hey, Tim, thanks so much for joining us again. We always appreciate getting these monthly updates. Tim Fury, chairman of the Manufacturing Business Survey, uh, the Institute for Supply Management. Some really blowout, strong numbers coming out of industrial America. And as Tim mentioned, we've had some a pretty consistent performance there. And again, that's uh, 30% of the economy. Uh, so you flip to the other 70%. That's services. That's folks. That's getting people uh, back to work in a lot of those leisure industries. And the expectation is that's part of that whole reopening uh, trade that we're all looking forward to. Uh, later this year.
1: Now I want to talk about um, uh, because it is International uh, Women's Day coming up. I think it's on the on the eighth, and because um, we're celebrating women, I think I believe all month here uh, on Bloomberg Radio. I want to bring in Brenda Darden Wilkerson. She's president and CEO of AnitaB.org, which um, I guess strives to drive diversity, um, equality, and inclusion across the tech industry. So tell us a little bit, Brenda. Well, first of all, welcome to the program. Uh, thanks thanks hey. for joining us. Tell us a little bit about what Anita B does. and also why the tech industry, I always wonder this. why is it so sort of notoriously bad for um, gender issues?
5: Well, thanks so much for having me again. Um, so why the tech industry? Well, first of all, the tech industry, we have to admit, touches every aspect of every life globally. And that's why we exist to work within the ecosystem to make sure that the table where tech is created is as diverse as the people that it serves. Now, why is it so notoriously in the state? It's, and it's its all about history. It's all about pattern matching um, the history of tech started off largely with women and men, but there was this point in time when the, the narrative switched to only focus on what the men had done and not on what the women have done. And what we've been trying to work against is that very narrative from the beginning. And, and so that's what we do. You know, our, our organization exists to make sure that the, play, the people who create tech mirror the societies for whom they create it.
0: Has there been progress? What has been the progress, say, over the last five years, Brenda, as it relates to the tech industry?
5: So, yes, there's progress. You know, we are definitely glass half full around this, this whole uh, opportunity. Now, of course, uh, our namesake, Anita Borg, who started the organization some 30 years ago, had a goal, which was 50-50 by 2020. We obviously didn't make that. And we actually actually did a little backsliding before we've gone forward. But, yes, there are some strides being made. Uh, we have a top companies program, which is the only program that focuses on the equity uh, around women in tech in great companies who are doing that work. And what we've seen is those companies who are willing to put in the work, who are willing to do those things that we know work. I mean, we don't have to guess. We know what works. Uh, saw great strides last year. We saw them move five percentage points versus the overall industry that normally hovers around just less than a percentage point.
1: You know, I wonder how much the problem is in the link to finance in terms of successes, Brenda, because, you know, I've always thought of the tech industry as one where anyone, no matter what you look like or who you are, you can get into it because you're doing it usually from a computer in your mom's basement, right? So, um, (laughs) No one sees you. But then, of course, when you come up with this idea, even if it's only with a couple of friends in the garage, you need some Wall Street banker guys to back you before you can grow it. Is that why you've seen uh, this inequality?
5: Well, it's some part of it? of it, right? It's yeah. part of it, yes. There's this thing, this insidious thing called pattern matching where – You know, in order to get backing, you've got to have this warm intro. And normally, this warm intro comes from people that are in your network. And unfortunately, a lot of people who have the money to invest um, that are VCs, um, they all look alike. And they don't, the people that are in their network are the ones that end up getting the money. Um, It's actually a loss for them because we know that diverse teams, diverse leadership, diverse boards produce a better bottom line than those that are not. So what we're hoping is to be able to continue to beat that drum and help people understand that this is really in their, um, it's in their favor to think about diversity and not only think about it, but to implement it. Uh, How has
0: the pandemic kind of impacted women? We know that it's been very difficult in terms of child care and so on and so forth. Give us your thoughts on on kind of what you've seen.
5: Well, yeah, I mean, we know the losses for women across the board um, have been larger than that for men. We know that the job loss at the the last month of last year, all of those jobs were lost by women. Um, of course, in tech, we've seen, you know, a little different sort of, um, impact because women are able to work at home and, 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 um, be able to do their work um, in a way that allows them to continue. But the pressure has come. I mean, we're one year into this, and we've seen that the pressure has come on women because they're doing triple duty. They were already doing double duty, right? Now mm-hmm. it's triple duty if the kids are at home um, and they're teaching the kids at home, if they have older parents that they used to have support for. It's bringing pressure. And what's caught, what what's, it's going to ultimately cause if we aren't careful is a brain drain. Um, of these amazingly talented and experienced women who have to take a step back because of these additional pressures.
1: Just quickly, want to mention Grace Hopper, which is, uh, well, she is a famous, um, uh, I, guess, I guess, original coder, right? From World War II. Yes, from, the, yes. from, from, from the yeah, From the Navy. And it's something also that you do every year, sort of dedicated, well, in Grace Hopper's name.
5: Yes, absolutely. We have the largest Women in Tech uh, conference uh, in the world. We have one in the U.S., and we have the largest in Asia. Uh, And we do dedicate it not only in her name, but in the name of of lots of other amazing women who really were at the foundation of tech. They have a lot to do with a lot of the uh, strength in tech that we uh, enjoy today.
0: Hey, Brenda, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Brenda Darden, Wilkinson, President and CEO of AnitaB.org.